0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'm happy to say that the following interview is brought to you with permission by the excellent podcast, Who Makes Sense? A History of
1: Capitalism. I hope that you enjoy this episode, and I hope that you visit Who Makes Sense. A few weeks ago, in mid-December, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates for the first time in nine years. The Fed thus raised the cost of borrowing money for consumers. As a result, many should expect to pay higher rates on their credit cards in the coming year. And for people outside the U.S., the International Monetary Fund's Christine Lagarde has warned that such a decision could have dangerous spillover effects for the economies of most other countries. For most of us, these policies and their results are anything but abstract. We feel them most acutely.
2: Our guest today explores the narratives we have been told and tell about finance. A literary scholar, Claire Leberge, writes about the representations of finance from the years after 1979, and how many of the stories we tell about finance, that it is abstract and exceedingly complicated, took hold in this era.
1: Among other topics, she addresses how stock markets came to stand in for the economy as a whole. And LeClaire highlights how literary analysis can be crucial to evaluating the stories of finance and how they shape our lives.
2: Before we chat with her, we wanted to remind you that the History of Capitalism Summer Camp at Cornell University is accepting applications through January 15th. If you're a scholar who could use some quantitative skills to further your research in the history of capitalism, you should apply.
1: This podcast got its start at the inaugural History of Capitalism Camp in 2013. Learn more at HOC. Dot ilr. Cornell. edu Slash Summer Hyphen Camp. And we all have a link up at our website, Who Makes
2: You are listening to Who Makes Sense, a History of Capitalism podcast. I'm Betsy Beasley. And I'm David Stein. Who Makes Sense is a monthly podcast devoted to bringing you engaging stories that explain how capitalism has changed over time.
1: We interview historians and social and cultural critics about capitalism's past, highlighting the political and the economic changes that have created the present.
2: Today, we speak to Lee Claire LeBerge.
0: My name is uh, Lee Claire LeBerge. I'm an assistant professor of English um, at Bureau of Manhattan Community College in the City University of New York. Uh, my book is, is called Scandals and Abstraction Financial Fiction of the Long 1980s. And I really try to think through the way that literature and the economy sort of mirrored and criticized and represented each other during this uh, period that um, I, along with other scholars, call financialization, um, which is sort of a post-1973 transformation of um, not only the American, but the global uh,
2: economy. Highly clear. Could you give our listeners a sense of your book? its narrative arc and some of the methods you utilize to answer your questions.
0: In the book, I try to, I try to isolate three areas or sort of three academic disciplines in which, um, in which one might be able to track historical transformation. And so the first one I look at is, um, is simply contemporary American literature. Um, I look at novels written mostly in the 80s. I also look at some films, and I can go into more details about the novels in a second, um, but, you know, literature and, and, and culture, um, broadly defined, is the sort of first area. The second area is political economy, and I think that's a little bit different um, than just saying something like economic history, because um, political economy tries to uh, make an argument for how we should think about the economy. There's a certain kind of non-empiricism, I think, in political economy. And what I mean by that is a way in which the field of the political economy tries to make sure that economics are understood as not simply a factual, but a historical understanding of value and exchange, and then the third area is a kind of is a kind of uh, area that I came up with through the process of researching the book, and it's what I call um, financial print culture. Print culture itself is a term that historians and uh, literary theorists have been using really since the the seventies. Someone like uh, Benedict Anderson, who just passed away, was really interested in in this term, in the construction of nation state, in his book, Imagined Communities. But I try to expand that a little bit to to say financial print culture. And what I mean by that is just all printed material about finance. So uh, it may be an advertisement. It may be an article from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it may be one of the many popular publications um, that that are introduced during this time period and are still with us. Things like um, Money Magazine, uh, for example, various personal investment guides, personal banking guides, um, even the term personal banking itself comes out of this uh, time period. So, by financial print culture, I try to look at um, as many representations of finance as possible through as large of an archive as possible. And so um, then ultimately what I try to do in the book is I try to say, okay, how do these three areas literature, political economy, and financial print culture, how do they track financialization, the financialization of the American economy? during this this period, the 1980s. And what I found in my research was that these three, um, you know, we can call them disciplines or we can call them discourses. They were very much in conversation with each other. Terms would be borrowed, for instance, from um, a newspaper, uh, something like the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. Uh, or American banker or institutional investor and would, would turn up in, in novels, in cultural publications or in films. I think that's probably not so unusual. What I was more surprised by is that also fictional depictions of finance, things like novels, like films, like plays, theater, um, then actually started to circulate in financial publications. So there was a very uh, sort of fertile back and forth, um, a very sort of interesting intercourse between fictional writing about finance and factual writing about finance. But what all of these things had in common was they were all making a reference to this idea, this object, uh, finance, which itself is being redefined throughout the decade, and and then as a literary scholar, one thing that I was very interested to find is that the the books which the novels which have become the most canonical novels of the 1980s, something like White Noise, uh, which is probably now. Probably the most taught uh, postmodern novel that we have. Um, or American Psycho, maybe the most vilified postmodern novel that we have. Or The Bonfire of the Vanities, uh, you know, one of the best selling novels actually of the 20th century. Um, all of these crucial texts that come out of the 1980s are in this conversation about finance. What is finance? Why is it newly present? How is it changing? How should it be represented? Um, So there were many contests over over finance as well.
1: Was there a key piece of evidence, or in your case, a text that catalyzed the research process that led to this book?
0: I think there was a key text. And I think there was also uh, um, a key piece of evidence. I think the key text may have been this essay that Frederick Jameson published called um, Culture and Finance Capital. He he made this claim, I think, essentially in that essay that in this new era of, of the dominance of global finance, um, that finance had become so abstract. And that was a key text for me because one of the key pieces of evidence that I found doing archival work was that it it was not beyond representability, but in fact there was a, a real explosion of its representation. And when I was looking at um, things like the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times um, in the early nineteen eighties, um, it, it wasn't only that uh, that stories about finance um, by by journalists were so um, common and pervasive and multi layered. But um, but also that advertisements as well. So, for instance, um, I couldn't believe the sort of profusion of advertisements around what starts to get called personal banking. This idea that um, this idea that was first articulated in the early 80s, that all citizens are uh, not even citizens. That's a contested word. Um, but all subjects, let's say, are agents. Uh, would become their own bankers. And the Wall Street Journal in particular had, you know, sort of article after article, but also advertisement after advertisement presenting this, um, this future in which you know, that the television and the telephone would become these kind of um, all-knowing and dystopian automated teller machines that would be in the house with you. And of course, that didn't happen, literally. Um, What instead happened is that we've all become our own bankers through our computers and phones. Um, But that was really a key piece of evidence for me, these sort of, particularly, I think, the advertisements that came out of of early eighties financial publications, because they seemed to me almost, in a sense, um, more accurate and more prescient than I think the um, the some of the theoretical work that I was reading um, that I had felt so engaged with.
2: And what about some of the deeper questions that brought you to this topic? How did you develop those?
0: As a college student, I was a I was a philosophy major, and I graduated college in nineteen. 98, and that was during the the sort of height of the uh, speculative internet tech boom. But um, I I essentially got hired to work with um, a a large sort of multinational company that was um, working with the auditing firm Arthur Anderson. Those are the people who were, that was the firm that was auditing Enron's books that ultimately. not only did Enron go bankrupt, but the company also went bankrupt and had to shut down. But I was hired to do sort of audits of um, advertising companies all over the world. And I started to, you know, in my 22-year-old, 23-year-old mind, think like, wow, the um, the process of doing these financial audits is So similar to post-structuralist philosophy in the sense that it's the documentation itself that produces the value. Another way of saying that is what you get with a a corporate audit, what you get with a corporate financial audit is much less a sort of um, uh, accounting for value than simply a representation of it or an assertion of it. Um, So I got very interested in corporate documentation and, and I started graduate school. I got my Ph.D. in American Studies from NYU, thinking that I would write, um, do sort of ethnography of corporate documenting practices. But what I found is that I actually appreciated the imaginative and figurative aspects of those practices uh, more than the the ethnographic work that would go into a project like that. Um, and so I think it was with that sort of disposition in mind that when I started taking, you know, survey classes or literature classes, literary theory classes in graduate school that I was able to, um, to sort of find the space to construct this kind of archive. For me, it was with that in mind that made reading people like Giovanni Urbighi uh, whose book, The Long 20th Century, was so interesting, or Jameson, that enabled me to read those theorists with an idea towards an empirical archival world at the same time. I'm, I think I'm less interested in theory for theory's sake than I am as in theory as a sort of articulation of the mediation of meaning between a kind of abstract and a concrete in any given social situation.
2: That's a really powerful point about how narrative and representation in some ways create finance. Can you talk about that in a little more detail?
0: Um, The way the book is is organized is that there's a kind of uh, literary text at the heart of every chapter. And those texts are all novels. In one chapter, I also look at a film, but it's also a narrative film. And, you know, what a novel has that a photograph um, or a sculpture doesn't have what a novel has is it has in it, it it's constructed around a, a beginning middle and end you know with a novel you have to start reading at the beginning and you have to read forward and uh, the way most novels work is um, you know as you as you read forward in the narrative meaning becomes retrospectively apparent you understand why you had been reading what you had been reading. As you continue to read. And that's the same thing with any film, maybe a little bit less so, any piece of music. But that's just a sort of basic understanding, literary theoretical understanding of what a narrative is. And what I realized while writing the book is that's very similar to the way that a lot of financial deals are constructed. So I try to draw this this connection between how a narrative is constructed and how a financial deal is constructed. So let's say that you um, apply for a loan. Um, You know, you you get the loan in 2015, and you have to pay it back uh, in 2045. Let's say it's a 30-year mortgage. Um, So you have this time frame built in where someone has has given you a loan in the present, right? Um, With the idea that you're gonna reach a certain ending, there's a certain future um, in which that loan will have been a good decision. Um, Obviously there's a certain amount of risk involved. There's also risk involved in a narrative. Um, But what I started to think about is how how that relationship to uh, futurity, then becomes, in literature, it becomes a way to structure meaning, to structure a plot. Um, but in our social world, it becomes a way to, to structure um, to structure people, to structure social forms. And I started to wonder about what does it mean um, for both individuals' sense of, of a future and an ending and for a collective sense of a future and an ending if many people are not necessarily indebted, although that's certainly very common, but if many people in many institutions are engaged in these um, financial calculations that presume a certain time, whether it's retirement, whether it's social security, whether it's a student loan, all of these things are ways to organize um, socially a temporal horizon. So I look at the way that literature, because it is a narrative art, might be a site to critique and to understand um, that temporal relationship to the future, but also how to perhaps reconfigure it. Maybe because literature is more imaginative, uh, maybe because literature is more figurative, it allows us ways to rethink a future temporality, whereas signing a mortgage document or being in debt, uh, I don't think allows you the same playfulness about constructing other scenarios.
1: Yeah. The line you use in the book to describe that is you say, quote, to finance is to have a narrative about how the future will unfold.
0: Exactly. Exactly. I think that's something that that I'm very much trying to capture. And then you know, for your more literary-inclined listeners, I think the really interesting thing about the 1980s in terms of aesthetics is that it's a time period in which um, postmodernism becomes canonized. It becomes part of many, you know, college syllabi. It becomes a specialty that you're going to have in an English department or arts, fine arts. Um, But what postmodernism is so known for, what it excels at is that beginning, middle, and end are no longer the sort of guaranteed points of progress. Mm -hmm. And what I'm really interested in the book is trying to think about how different novels and how different kinds of representations of finance might get us to a point where we can reconceptualize a future. Because I think one of the things that we as as sort of contemporaries are told time and time again, and this is a very, this is a much longer discourse of modernity, But we're told that the economy is what is real, the economy is what is fact-based, and it's not necessarily up for negotiation. Um, What it means is not necessarily up for negotiation or reimagination. But what these texts, these literary texts um, and filmic texts that I try to look at tell us time and time again is that, It's constantly being renegotiated. And then what was so interesting for me to find is that so many journalists in the 1980s um, are using those texts to construct their factual narratives about what the economy is.
1: Your focus on the long 1980s is important because for you, it is a period when finance and the stock market came to represent the economy as a whole. Can you explain why it is so significant to uncover the culture behind this change?
0: There there's sort of many different levels that we can answer that question on. But they're basically, by the end of the 70s, by the early 80s, the number of Americans who are um, invested in the stock market in one way or the other is really opened up. It, it stops being something that you would find at, let's say, the the top um, 10 or 15% of earners and becomes by about, let's see, 2012. Um, and I've seen different statistics, but let's say by 2012, you had 55% or 60% of Americans invested in the stock market, most of them through their retirement plans. So on the one hand, it's during the period that I track, you have, you have more and more Americans coming to think that they have some stake in what, quote unquote, the stock market does or is. The stock market doesn't have one precise meaning. It's, you know, there are a bunch of different indices like the Dow Jones Index, the S&P 500, the NASDAQ. But also during the 1980s, you actually see a proliferation of the representation of these kind of indices. So, One of the things I think about in the book is how often throughout this period, not only are people more exposed to the stock market because of their own implication in it, but literally how often they start to see the stock market, whether you see it on television or you hear it on the radio um, or you see it in public space. There's literally a huge proliferation of, of representation of just seeing what the stock market is. And so The argument that I try to make in the book, and I use a literary term to do this, I talk about metonymy, which just means when a part stands in for a whole. The argument that I start to make is that through these various representations of different aspects of the stock market, the stock market itself comes to, to define or becomes a site of association for how people understand the, quote unquote, the economy um, is doing. And I think this is a really, I think this is a really powerful form of leverage, because, um, again, going back to what I was talking about with the future, if people have a sense of their own economic well-being as tied to the stock market, in various forms, then in fact, um, for many of us, the stock market could be telling us one thing in the sense of um, your economic well-being is is better than you thought it was. Um, even as what makes, quote-unquote, the stock market go up would actually produce a social world in which many of us would not fare as well. And what I mean by that is something like the privatization of Social Security. Um, I mean, that would be harmful for millions of working-class middle class Americans. But that would also, quote unquote, make the stock market go up if it ever happened. And so I try to locate these tensions whereby um, the representation of the economy and the actuality of the economy come into conflict. And I think that in the 1980s, all of the sort of images, associations and narratives about finance as sort of condensed in the stock market are one place where that happens.
2: So, getting into one of the key theoretical arguments, and one I'd love for you to expound upon for our listeners, is the relationship between finance and labor. This has been tricky for cultural critiques of finance since it can come into friction with Marx's notion of a labor theory of value, um, and this is a theory that posits that all value actually comes from labor. This, at first glance, might seem like a very academic debate, um, you know, not really relevant to a lot of people, but. It matters a whole lot for what we think finance is and how it's represented. So, could you talk a little bit more about the relationship between finance and labor, and finance and commodities?
0: I think there's this idea that that finance is is non productive. It doesn't really require workers. Um, it doesn't really qu- require factories. Um, all the sort of things that populate are imaginary of what. The economy is what, what are particularly what production is, seem to be on the verge of being antiquated when we enter a world of finance. And and one thing that I just saw recently that I think gets to your question is it was a popular article, maybe on Salon or Slate, but it said it said you know our leading companies uh, now have no material basis, and it said. For example, Airbnb, you know, $6 billion valuation. I don't know the exact number, but Airbnb, $6 billion valuation, but it owns no hotels or no houses. Uber, $5 billion valuation. Uh, it's a taxi company, but it owns no cars. It's this idea that when a company is is operating at, at the level of high finance, the material world and the world of people working Uh, and people owning, ceases to be important. And I think that that's that's interesting theoretically, but it's also very interesting politically, um, because what happens to something like a working-class politics or a middle-class politics if we're told that the economy now no longer requires uh, working-class and middle-class workers? And I think that that's a very problematic line of argument You know, I was just talking to to the Australian political economist Dick Bryan recently, and he was telling me that still it is the case today that worldwide most financial wealth is found in the household, is stored in the household. And what he meant by that is, you know, even, for example, if we think about mortgage backed securities and various different sort of collateralized debt obligations, You know, there's still a fundamental material world, which we all populate and which we all contest, which is required to make this this world of high finance function. But, of course, it's very much in the interest of the world of high finance for them to say No, that material world, that world of workers, that world of of sort of material productivity no longer matters to us. It's an ideological problem. It's a political problem. And I felt I felt very invested when I was writing the book in 2010, 2011, in the academic world in which I was circulating. I felt like there was a real temptation for scholars with whom I was in conversation to follow this line of finance takes us to a place that is more abstract, that is more complex, that no longer has a material basis that concerns us. So I really wanted to to make an argument against that, both because you know theoretically I think it's inaccurate, but also politically I think it's very important that we find ways to conceptualize uh, the economy as a whole in which we are all involved and all contested.
1: So this question, in a sense, follows your last point about the importance of the household, but also its elision. Among the things you explore about the culture of finance is its emphasis on, quote, masculinity and aesthetic comportment. And you discuss a category which you call financial masculinity. What does such a gendered analytic reveal for you about the texts you write about?
0: It was a really important category for me, this idea of financial masculinity. And when I, when I first began writing the, the book as a dissertation, my idea was actually to, to track finance, um, to track the representation of finance across the, the 20th century. So to start in the 1910s and the 1920s and then move up through the 1950s and 60s um, with the rise of sort of monopoly capital and the, the kind of organization man, and then go to the 1980s. And I wrote the 1980s chapter first, and I found that that was sort of so rich that I didn't um, ever go back. But one of the things that I think really influenced me in writing the book was um, the comparison between how finance had been represented popularly in, um, in the 1910s and 20s, uh, which was another area in which, um, representations of finance were, were very common, common popularly, common in novels, uh, very important in literature. And what I found was that, um, that in the 1920s, in the 1910s and 1920s, you know, the financier, um, he was still a he. He was he was always a male, but he was more um, a shady character. He was more the equivalent to today how we might find somebody who like runs a betting racket, like a sort of racketeer, um, or runs a runs a cartel. Even for the most part. Uh, the financier did not have the associations of a sort of stylized beauty and and a sort of like powerful self-fashioning that I found in the 1980s so when I started to see these images in the in the 1980s and I found them I found them all over and again this is why I think that it was Um, important for the book to look at financial print culture, because I found them in things like New York Magazine, but also in the Wall Street Journal, also in American Banker, also in a film like American Psycho. One of the things that I started to find was that finance became a place for a kind of heterosexual, upper middle class white man to restyle himself in the face of a changing economy in the face of what theorists at the time were starting to to label post-industrialization. And what I found was that the sort of most gruesome images uh, that we can think of when we think of finance, and I think for for many of us that would come from a place like Brett Easton Ellis' novel, American Psycho, uh, also, which was also made into um, a film by Mary Herron, Those texts present the financier as, you know, quite literally a serial murderer, um, a cannibal, a serial rapist. But what I found was that was actually quite uh, contiguous with financiers' understandings of themselves um, in their own language. And so in the book, I look at things like Donald Trump's uh, autobiography called The Art of the Deal, um, Ivan Boski's autobiography which was called merger mania T Boone Pickens's autobiography um, which was called Boone um, some of Michael Milken's personal writings and what I what I found was that across both fiction and across nonfiction and in journalism finance actually in addition to becoming a in addition to being a changing economic system a changing way to capture value was a way for You know, white white men to assert a kind of cultural uh, control over others, whether those others be people of color, women, um, gays and lesbians. Finance was a way to assert that control through an idiom of violence. Right. So the 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 language of violence became a very important way um, for for financiers not only to talk of themselves but to talk to other people and if we join that language of um, financial violence or if we think about the idiom of financial violence with the conversation we were just having about how how finance tries to monopolize both what the economy is but also what the future is we're presented a very scary i think in Scenario um, in which we have this this sort of you know cartel of of uh, people who present an image of a collective future of a collective wealth that is governed through um, governed through you know assault dismemberment torture I mean on the one hand it was a very unique thing to find historically but on the other thing I think it, it also also speaks to I think the literal violence that um, that an unequal economic order does both produce and require So for me financial masculinity is a site of both metaphor um, but also it does contain really a certain amount of, of literal indexicality or of, of a sort of literal claim on our economic
2: presence. How would you situate the importance methodologically of literary analysis in something like the history of capitalism?
0: My my training is as a literary scholar. I'm employed in an English department and I think that I think that one of the exciting things about interdisciplinary work is that, you know, when it's done well, it 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 opens up, you know, it opens up new dimensions for analysis. Um, but one of the things that I can say as an, as an English professor and as a literary scholar is I think that it's not, I think interdisciplinary work isn't necessarily a, a two-way street. And what I mean by that is I, I think that, um, probably English scholars have a higher proficiency in, in things like political economy or anthropology or history than do, um, Historians, anthropologists, or political economists have in literary studies. Sometimes I ask about that at conferences because I attend conferences all the time in other fields where I feel like I'm I'm able to be conversant um, in these other disciplines, but there's not necessarily. There's not necessarily a reciprocation back to literary studies. And I wonder sometimes, okay, why is that the case? And I can think of different ways that we might think of answering that question. Um, one of them would be that, you know, history or political economy or ethnography contain a kind of uh, real, a kind of fact-based knowledge that is not accessible to scholars in the, in the humanities or in, in English so we're required to go to those other disciplines, but I sort of, you know, I sort of have a have a problem with accepting that logic, because I think instead what we might think about is how does a if we to use a term we haven't used yet, which is neoliberalism. Um, but but how does sort of our contemporary era of either of financialization or a neoliberalism, how does that world itself? exile or marginalize things like literary studies, things like representation, things like imagination. And, you know, again, this is why I think it's so interesting in in my book to find that, um, you know, some of our commonplace uh, understandings of finance, you know, that it's complex, that it's abstract. These come as much from um, a literary archive as they do from an economic archive. But why does the why does the humanistic part of that equation? why does the literary part? why does it get exiled? Like what is the ideological project behind um, exiling or marginalizing parts of the humanities in this era of financialization? And I don't you know I don't necessarily have an answer for that question, but I do think it's it's really important to ask. And I do think that it's also, I think it's also very interesting that um, the story that I was able to tell through mostly literary history, through mostly reading of novels, is able to both parallel a book like, let's say, Randy Martin's The Financialization of Everyday Life or, you know, um, parts of Giovanni Origi's The Long 20th Century, but also, I think, able to expand and complicate that and um, actually open up new sites for thinking about alternatives, new sites for thinking about um, resistance. And I think also, to I think the insistence of the literary is always that Whatever supposed truth that we're getting, whatever historical truth or social truth, you know it always comes to us um, with figurative and imaginative elements, um, even though it's the work of much social science to to sort of disclaim that figurative length i I hope that that my contribution to our conversation about where did this financial error come from, how did it get to be shaped like it is um, is to say that. In order to answer that question adequately, we need to have a very expansive archive and it can't just be an archive of um, empiricism or social science.
2: So your book concludes in the early 2000s, but our listeners will obviously understand the story you're telling in the context of the most recent credit crisis and recession. How would you situate your book within the experience of the past few years of financial culture?
0: I guess I would say that as I was writing the book, the credit crisis of those years, the global credit crisis was unfolding. And for me, it's interesting. It sort of served as a template to actually see things that had been, um, you know, narrative tropes. Um, a certain collection of, you know, metaphors and symbols that I think had been introduced and sort of allowed to circulate and put in place in the mid to late 80s, how they were then recycled and sort of available um, to to narrate and to, to understand um, the contemporary crisis, the 2007-2008 crisis. I think it's interesting. You know, I think it's just now that we're starting to see Uh, more fictional accounts of that crisis. Um, The film that just came out, The Big Short, I haven't seen it, Um, but there was that film, Margin Call. But I think for the most part, mine and probably many of your listeners and probably you, our exposure to the 2007-2008 credit crisis has up until now been, I I would say, um, pretty much journalistic or pretty much impressionistic in the sense that we haven't had a lot of time and reflection for, for histories and for um, fictional, you know, narrative texts to be composed. So what I found was in terms of the, the journalism that I think it's even fair to say there was a kind of new financial journalism established in the 1980s. Probably the book that most of your readers would be familiar with and the author would be Michael Lewis is the author He's the one who wrote the book that the, that the new film, The Big Short, is based on. His book from the 1980s, Liar's Poker. I write about a lot in my book. So I think there's a kind of financial journalism, which um, is very interested in personality, very interested in individual actors. I think that, and very, very centrally interested in the trope of complexity. So on the one hand, the template for a lot of this kind of journalism um, that comes out of the '80s, and that what I really found in my book—that actually comes out of the savings and loans crisis, which was a, a real estate slash um, banking crisis, primarily in the south uh, sorry, southwest, of the United States. But um, at its height, about 1,600 banks had, were closed um, in the United States during this crisis. But It was a sort of interesting crisis because it never had, there was never a central crash of the savings and loans crisis. There was never a central culprit. Um, although there were many people, you know, like Charles Keating, sort of revolving in and out. But the main way that this crisis was was narrated over the span of, I guess, eight or nine years, um, the main trope to come out of it was that, well, we'll never actually know what happened with the savings and loans crisis because the accounting standards themselves uh, became so complex that it's very difficult to hold anybody responsible, and the the auditors and the bankers themselves actually didn't quite know what they were doing, and in a certain sense we we can see very clearly that that's not true um, that there was that there were certain intentions that there were certain you know schemes put in place that were legal at the time that enabled people to extract large amounts of value from from small banks and from houses. But that trope of complexity and that, that trope of marrying complexity with sort of individual responsibility and actors who, on the one hand, are very personalized in these narratives, and yet, on the other hand, never have to take responsibility. I think that, for many of us, that's how we came to know the 2007-2008 crisis. So, uh, for instance the central sort of financial instrument of the crisis, um, maybe not now, but certainly for the past few years, I would say has been the derivative. And the idea that the derivative is too complex to be understood. And I think what's so interesting about this template is, you know, if you look at something like Michael Moore's film, Capitalism, A Love Story, here you have probably like the most popular progressive journalist, maybe in the country today. And he does a little section on what the derivative is in his film, Capitalism, A Love Story. And he comes to the conclusion, um, interviewing derivatives traders, uh, interviewing economists, that it's too complex to be understood. And that was the same line that was put out by the financial industry themselves after the crisis. And so I think what that shows us is that it's a really interesting moment politically when we have like the country's most popular leftist filmmaker and chief of various investment banks giving us the same understanding of what happened. That seems to me to be a really interesting moment to think about. And that particular trope and that particular organization of understanding economic crisis and economic change is something that I found uh, came out of this failed scandal, this not a very popular scandal, uh, the savings and loan scandals of the 1980s. So that's that's to me how I was thinking about it. I think also terms like financial masculinity um, are certainly centrally operative in in understanding the 2007 2008 crash. Not necessarily what happened, but how it was narrative. So a film that I'm thinking of, Margin Call. Again, it's taking these tropes of talking about financiers visiting prostitutes and sort of showing their sort of prowess on the trading floor through their control of women and through their objectification of women. Again, those are things that come out of this moment in the 1980s that are now being used to rearticulate and re-narrate this newer crisis, which is in many ways much more profound and certainly a continuation of of the kind of economic world that was put in place in the late 1970s and early
1: 1980s. And to a certain extent, would you say that narrative obfuscates the daily violence of finance?
0: Um, I would say that in part it obfuscates it, but I think in an in, in other part it it is quite revealing of it. I think I think that if we learn to look at these narratives more historically and more expansively, we'll see that that obfuscation is almost always enjoined with moments of revelation.
2: If you liked our show, make sure to check us out at WhomakesSensePodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Sense, and follow us on Twitter at Sense. And let us know if there are
1: topics that you
2: want to know more about.
1: You can learn more about Lee Claire's work at our website,
2: Who makes Sense is supported by the Yale Public Humanities Program and the University of Southern California's Department of American Studies
1: and Ethnicity. Join us next month for more histories of capitalism.